Buddhang Dhammang Sanghang Namatsang. This being New Year's Eve, it's likely that some of us have been thinking about New Year's resolutions and, and maybe in the process of thinking about making New Year's resolutions we are reminded of previous years where we've made resolutions and not been terribly successful at it. So I would like to encourage to approach this uh, not in a, a grand way, rather in a, a modest way. And it's important that when we make resolutions that we succeed at them. And so although it might feel like making grand statements of I'm going to, it might feel good on one level, it's possibly not realistic. And so approaching this with an attitude of modesty and being realistic and determining, for instance, I determine to increase the moments of truthfulness in my life. When we go for refuge to the Dhamma, we're going for refuge to truth, to truthfulness. And, and so this is a skillful aspiration. And I would suspect that, I'm sure, I'm sure it's something that we can all, to some degree, feel successful at. And as for how to assess, am I being truthful? If we make this determination and then we want to check, am I being truthful? How truthful am I being here? Well, I would recommend that we don't ask our heads that question because there's all sorts of stories going on up there, all sorts of programming that is possibly redundant by now or maybe never was that good anyway. However, we could ask our hearts this question. We could try asking our hearts or asking our belly, uh, how truthful am I being in this situation? Or afterwards, uh, if we make such a determination and we're checking how we're doing, and say, well, how truthful was I being? And once again, I encourage not necessarily asking our heads so we can think about it, really feel about it, really, do we feel that we're being truthful? Do we have a truthful relationship with our own being? Particularly if we have some degree of access to open-heartedness, it's probably not so easy to lie to ourselves if we're in the open-hearted state. And and by the open-hearted state, I'm not talking about an idea of being friendly or welcoming, and as wholesome as those ideas are. Rather, it's more like an actual physical feeling in the center of the chest, a feeling like, like an open window with a, a breeze gently passing through, that 
open-heartedness, the open-hearted state. Can we access that open-hearted state and ask ourselves the question, how truthful am I being? If you hear that suggestion and then you're puzzled, what's he talking about, this open window with a breeze passing through it? Well, we all know this state to some degree. We may, may not have really access to it. However, if you just imagine, how does it feel when you look at children playing or you look at children when they're giggling or laughing? uncontrollably laughing. What is it? Where is it that we feel that? Where is it that we feel moved when you watch a little child giggling uncontrollably? It's not in our heads. We might be up in our heads thinking, oh, I could take a photograph of this and put it on my Instagram account. That's not the same thing as really locating where we feel, what we feel when we see children playing or parents caring for their children. Mm. There was a, a gentleman here at the meal today and had a little baby child, I don't know, maybe four weeks old, four months old, anyway, very small, and just to watch this guy uh, holding this child and, and a carrier around his neck and the caring, the beautiful caring. What, where do we feel touched when we observe that caring? Or when you think of the the Karani Metta Sutta that we, well, we're going to chant later on this evening, and even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, that the caring attitude of a mother or a father with a child, where do we feel that? It's in the heart. And so the open-hearted state is something that all of us, to some degree, are familiar with. Or, if, if, for instance, if it, Christmas has just passed and, and uh, maybe you, you went to... Uh, performance of Handel's Messiah and the, the Hallelujah Chorus and that singing of the Hallelujah Chorus. Which part of us feels touched by that? Uh, it's in the heart, it's in the center of the chest. Or you go on a meditation retreat and a few days into the retreat and, and you feel settled and something opens up and you're sitting upright and, oh, alive again, mm. Mm. the open-hearted state. Or those who are into extreme sports, that's also works. And some people, they do abseiling or free diving or mm, surfing or mm, accessing the open-hearted state. Reading novels and love stories. Why do people get so obsessed with reading love stories or watching movies? And, Accessing the open-hearted state, it's powerful and, and very natural. However, we don't always have ready access to it and that's something that's worth registering. It's true that in the open-hearted state we feel very vulnerable. However, it's also that's where we feel joy, it's where we feel enthusiasm. Some strange things happen, though, as we get older in our relationship with the open-hearted state. And you find that people sometimes get evangelical about their particular 
strategy for accessing the open-hearted state. And, and maybe they've got some spiritual agency that they worship and they sing hymns to or chant bhajans to and that gets them into the open-hearted state. And if you're not doing what they're doing, then they, they, they think you're nobody, you're a loser. You, you, or you're not working out in the gym six days a week and you're nobody. And if that's your way of accessing the open-hearted state, then it's actually possible. It's, it does happen that people get intoxicated with uh, strategies for accessing this utterly natural, beautiful, agreeable mode of being. And it seems to be, from what I can figure out, it seems to be that there's, there's a conflation going on between the approach, whether it's meditation retreat or singing hymns or chanting bhajans, the approach and the good feelings that arise in association with the open-hearted state. The pleasurable aliveness, the vitality that one feels in association with being open-hearted. And if we conflate those two things, then you can get quite weird. And so you get, get all evangelical and try to persuade everybody they've got to be doing what you're doing. And, And it's worth asking the question, I would suggest, why is something that is so agreeable and so natural, why do we lose access to it? Why do we lose ready access to the open-hearted state? Why do we have to do all these dramatic things? Mm. Risk our lives in the, some of the extreme sports that people do and then they come back and they're just so bright-eyed and full of life and it's a dangerous way of going about accessing the open-hearted state and yet people do it or falling in love over and over again well as you might expect if you listen to the talks that I give <laughs> then the answer is always pretty much the same that the reason we feel obstructed in our life is denied dukkha, that very early on in life we discover we have this facility for manipulating feelings. Small children don't know they have that facility and they just, they giggle, they laugh, they cry, they get upset, they just, and then as the years go by, little by little they start realizing, oh, I can, I can pretend that I'm not upset and then mummy will won't get angry at me. Yeah. Yeah. Or I can pretend that I don't feel guilty for just having stolen something. And we start to lie to ourselves and lie to other people and manipulate our feelings. It can be perfectly functional to park painful feelings away, like if you have a challenging, challenging situation and you need to rise to it and handle it and so it's fine. You, you can't be busy sorting out your feelings right there and then so you park those painful feelings in your belly and get on with doing what's called for in that situation and when the situation's been handled and then later on the right thing to do is to call those painful feelings, that dukkha, back up into the heart of awareness, meet it, really meet it and meet it in a way and in a dimension whereby 
all the resistance is dissolved and let go of. There's nothing remaining. We're not building up stress. We're not building up tension in our belly, which is where we tend to park dukkha, where we don't want to have to handle it. So we all experience dukkha. All beings experience dukkha. Like in our morning chanting, so kapari deva dukkha domanasa upayasa, so lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. Apiyehi sampa yoga dukkha, piyehi vipa yoga dukkha, yampi chanyalapanti tampi dukkham, all these different types of dukkha that the Buddha talked about. The dukkha of being separated from that which we find agreeable, like if you have a good friend staying and then the good friend parts and goes away and then there's a sense of loss, that's dukkha. Piyehi vipa yoga dukkha. Or association with that which is disagreeable. Somebody burns the rice. (laughs) Burnt rice really doesn't taste good. Saying, well, that's disagreeable, that's dukkha. It's association with the dislike. Yampi chanyalapanti tampi dukkha. Not getting what we like is dukkha. Book some some time to go on a retreat and you arrive there and immediately come down with norovirus and you recover from that and then you get a cold and well that's disappointing. That's mm, not getting what we want, dukkha. So we all experience dukkha. There's nothing new about that. Everybody experiences it. But do we really experience it? Do we really meet it? Or do we build up obstructions because of the unmet dukkha? And again, it's very understandable. We, if we grow up without well-informed, balanced people around us who set a wise and beautiful example of how to keep their heart open when they're faced with difficulties, well then we adopt their way of living and we just think it's normal. We collude with a collective assumption that it's too dangerous to live with an open heart. It's too dangerous to be vulnerable. That's the collective assumption that most of society operates on, which is a very sad state of affairs because we're not really alive. We've lost something, lost something very valuable. The open-hearted state, it's not just the place of enthusiasm and joy. It's also that place where, yes, we we get hurt. And on this practice, our relationship to that hurt matters tremendously. How do we relate to the hurt of life? Trying to get over it, blaming somebody else for it, wishing it wasn't there, all of those are pretty ineffectual. And yet, unfortunately, we have these habits of wishing we weren't feeling afraid, wishing we weren't feeling disappointed. And if we follow those strategies long enough, often enough, then they become unconscious. And we feel like, wow, there's something missing. What is it that's missing? Maybe it's a conscious relationship with our own heart energy, with our own being. Chronically afraid of living in the open-hearted state or chronically afraid to dare 
to be vulnerable. The result is we feel obstructed. And, um, and this is not new, of course, uh, to Buddhist meditators. And soon after you come across Buddhist meditation, you, the teacher starts talking about the, the five hindrances, sensual craving, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, skeptical doubt. And I know when I first heard about these five hindrances, oh, I've got plenty of those, and I adopted them as another kind of strategy for a kind of measuring how, what a failure I was. So much ill will and so much... I didn't have so much sloth and torpor because I was too angry or <laughs> too upset about something. Yeah. And the other four had plenty of those. Yeah. These are not ways of measuring what failures we are, rather the pointers. You know, all the Buddha's teachings are, are pointers of something to learn. And what we're pointing at here is the, the obstructions that we feel, that very feeling of obstruction. If we don't approach that feeling of being obstructed skillfully, carefully, if we just judge it, for instance, and say, I shouldn't be this way, it shouldn't be this way, then we can demonize it. We make a, an enemy out of the hindrances and, and then they, they feed on our aversion for them. Some of these hindrances, like the fourth hindrance, it sounds like a monster, udacha kukucha, udacha kukucha. <laughs> terrifying monster and we just feed it with ill will and hate our restlessness and worry and feel guilty about our skeptical doubt. That's not why we're given these teachings. Rather the, the feeling of obstructedness is something to be interested in. All of these, all of these apparent obstructions or what traditionally referred to as the kilesa, the the defilements, another heavy word, the defilements that obstruct our, our path to awakening. All of these hindrances and defilements or obstructions, whatever else we want to call them, these are pointers, things to get interested in. Feeling obstructed is not an indictment against us. It's rather something that's a suggestion to get interested in what's going on here. And why... Why do we always feel like come to meditate and just can't stop thinking about ice cream, <laughs> pistachio ice cream and pecan cookies? That sounds good, doesn't it? Pistachio ice cream and pecan cookies. Especially if it's like 6 o'clock at night and you're not going to even have breakfast for another 12 hours. Actually, I don't think about that too much. My mind becomes obsessed with what materials we use. If we if we acquire that semi derelict barn, well, what, what would, how would we renovate it? What materials will we use? I've spent ages obsessed with fantasizing. Um, whatever it is, and, yeah. these apparent obstructions, this contracted state, 
there are causes for it. And if we're interested in it, instead of just judging them and saying it shouldn't be this way, that's far too initial. Mm -hmm. Instead of just judging them and saying it shouldn't be this way, or I wish it wasn't this way, we get interested. What, what are the causes for this obsession I have with ice cream and cookies? Now, I'm not suggesting that we then spend our time thinking about what happened in my childhood to me so that now I can't stop thinking about ice cream and cookies. However, being interested that there are causes, factoring in there are causes, this is not a sign that I'm a failure or I've, I'm damaged or I'm born bad or any such thing. Uh, uh, there are causes um, like obsessive interest in ice cream and cookies. You know, it's quite possible that some stage of life encountered some experience that you weren't ready for or prepared for or able to handle and the pain was too much so you just started eating. Eating was a distraction. It's perfectly understandable. You know, yummy cookies and ice cream. And you don't have to feel bad. If that pattern gets established in a stage of life and we weren't particularly aware or particularly equipped with embodied mindfulness, then it, it can turn into a mental emotional habit. And it's going on all the time even though we don't know it. It can be going on all the time, we don't know it. So let's not demonize this feeling of obstructedness. Yeah. There are causes and getting interested. Hmm. Or the third one, tina, mitta, sloth and torpor. It's also perfectly understandable. And things happen to us in life that are just overwhelming, you know, particularly in an early stage of life as a child, and, and you feel overwhelmed and you don't scream and yell and throw a tantrum and you don't run away. You freeze. That happens. It's awful regrettable thing impacts us and we just freeze and if it's intense enough it can get lodged into the nervous system and again become a mental emotional pattern. Our hearts become closed a little bit or a lot and then we hear about this great teaching of the Buddha and meditation and apply ourselves with determination and interest and, and then we fall asleep. <laughs> Every time we come to meditate, we fall asleep. What's going on there? It's, let's not assume that it's because we're bad or we're damaged. Rather, there are causes, and it's just being open to that and feeling how we feel about that. You know, being open to the possibility that there are causes and being willing to simply receive where we're at rather than trying to get over it, trying to get past it wishing it wasn't this way, blaming somebody else for it. Mm. If only I didn't get born under that unfortunate astrological configuration. Yeah. Or if only I had a better diet when I was a child, we can spend all our time thinking, imagining, fantasizing about how it could have been otherwise. We can also, if we're interested, yeah, rather than just fantasizing about how it could have been otherwise, if we're interested, we can also turn attention around and simply feel that feeling of hurt. Feel the feeling of fear. Feel the feeling of sadness. It's a, 
a small gesture with a very big effect, turning the attention around instead of following the attention outwards, upwards into our heads and imagining how if it wasn't this way, I wouldn't be suffering. Or if I get my pecan cookies and my pistachio ice cream, how wonderful it's going to be. And, and instead of fantasizing about that, following that impulse, turning the attention around and feeling what we're feeling right here now in the center of the chest, in the heart, really meeting that, not avoiding it, not judging it. And, of course, we have to be very careful if we make that gesture because, as again we've said many times before, it's quite likely that you know, in some cases we've built up a backlog and so likely we have a backlog of denied ill will and instead of following your fantasies about why everybody else is ruining your life or you know, how it could be otherwise, you turn attention around and feel inwards, look inwards, sense inwards, and then you need this, this overwhelming upthrust of rage and think, I've really got a problem. Well, maybe that's just because you've opened the door to that particular room in the basement that you've been stuffing all that pain for so long. So don't be fooled and don't be in too much of a hurry. Don't give yourself a heart attack, whatever you do. It can be very intense when you decide to stop denying and avoiding life and, and meeting life truthfully in open-hearted awareness. And, and then what you might discover is that that thing that you felt was missing was always there. It's just that we weren't living in conscious relationship to it. Like wanting to eat ice cream Instead of following that fantasy, turn around and feel it fully, completely in the body, in the heart, until there's no resistance. What happened? That energy was reintegrated into the heart again. That which was dukkha becomes nourishment or fear. Fear something terrible is going to happen. Okay, if it's a big backlog of fear, you're going to have to bear with that for a while until it comes down and you've got a here and now moment of fear. Can we feel the fear and feel to the edges of the fear, feel around the fear, maybe imagine the space in which the fear is arising and ceasing and simply let it be there, no judgment. Don't Follow the old habit, the impulse to go up to head and think about it, and that's, that's avoiding it. Really meet it. And then we discover it ceases to be suffering. What happened? That imagined fear. The energy is reintegrated into the heart again. So with this approach to the apparent obstructions, not judging the obstructions and wishing they would just go away, rather using our disciplined attention and embodied mindfulness to truly, honestly, moment by moment, meet them, and greet them, allow them. And, and as I started off by saying, not being too heroic in the aspirations that we make and the determinations that we make, and talking about small moments and in small moments, for instance, of like feeling offended. You know, somebody didn't look at you at the time you wanted to be smiled at or, or somebody turned away when 
when you wanted to talk to them. And, or maybe they said something downright awful to you. Maybe it was understandable feeling of being offended. To work with that, to meet that, can we feel fully offended right here and now? Are we ever going to be able to live in this world, in this life, without feeling offended by something? Almost guaranteed it's not possible. But it is guaranteed it's not possible. And there will be offensive things happening to us. What are we going to do? Spend our whole life complaining about them? Or trying to get rid of them? Or wishing it wasn't this way? Or are we going to turn attention around, access, if we can, the open-hearted state, and feel what we feel? without judgment, without resistance. Mm. A few days ago, I sent out the Dhammapada reflection and I pointed out how it's understandable that with all the sad things happening in the world, some people decide that they're just going to turn off the news, they're not going to read the news anymore. And that doesn't really solve the situation that... Another approach, and I would suggest the practice approach, is to, yes, limit how much pain and unpleasantness we subject ourselves to, for sure. However, let's not underestimate the capacity we have for contributing compassion to the situation. And how do we feel compassion? We share that pain, we feel that pain. We look at the news and feel the sadness of it. Feel the sadness in the open-hearted state in a way whereby we're not crushed by the sadness, not wishing it would go away, not saying it shouldn't be this way, not getting lost in it, not pretending it isn't sad. Feel it, meet it, truthfully, and see if that gives rise to a sense of compassion. That is, feeling the sadness with others even if it brings tears. Mm. Tears are called for sometimes. Life is so sad. It's getting lost in tears. That is the mistake. It's just the same as getting lost in joy. And when things are agreeable, we tend to forget about the practice and allow ourselves to get lost in the joy and the gladness and the happiness. But what we forget is that when things turn, then there's a chance we're going to get lost in the disappointment and sadness. Mm. So once again, as we approach the new year, I, I encourage not being overly ambitious in the aspirations and determinations that we make, you know, perhaps resolving to look for improvements in our ability to honestly meet ourselves when dukkha arises. So thank you very much for your attention. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>